This podcast was made with Descript. Descript is a groundbreaking new media tool that allows creators to edit audio and video like a text document and create a realistic clone of their own voice for seamless edits. Please check out our Patreon at Asian Hustle Network. We want Asians to continue being meaningful and give back to the Asian community. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to contribute to our feature, we hope you become a patron. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. His name is Jason Ma. Jason is a media executive artist, investor, and serial entrepreneur. He is a principal of popular social music video app, Triller, co-founded premium production studio, Stampede Ventures, digital music label, 88 Rising, and East-West brand strategy and investment firm, East-West Ventures. Jason is a senior advisor to Tencent Music Entertainment and KK Box Fund KK Farm, and a network partner for consumer tech fund Goodwater Capital. He is also a senior advisor to private equity funds, advised by Courage Capital Management LLC that invests in catalogs of music rights. As well, Jason is a senior advisor to Wise Road Capital, a global private equity investment company, focusing on the semiconductor industry and other emerging high-tech industries. Jason is considered one of the leading financiers to companies, institutions, and individuals investing in Asian media, entertainment, and tech. Jason, welcome to the show. We're going to have to shorten that bio. (laughs) You have such an extensive background. I had to include it all in there. I'm gonna have to shorten that for sure. Um, <laughs> like a conference or something like that. Um, good to have me. Good to have you have have me on. I'm, I'm really excited yeah. to do this. You're one of le- the legends around the industry. We're super excited to have you on, man. And let's hop right into here, dude. So we understand that you grew up in East San Jose. Tell us what it's like to grow up in East San Jose. Uh, time you grew up. Uh, East Side San Jose. I mean. If anyone knows Eastside San Jose, then you'll know what Eastside San Jose is like. It's uh, it's not it's not the it's not a sub it's not the nicest neighborhood. It's um, I mean the East Side and the West Side is like you know it's like the hood, and then there's like you know the suburbs, right? So the suburbs was the West Side. It was like you know Cupertino and Los Gatos and Los Altos and Palo Alto. That's where you have Stanford and 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 all the nice things. And then you go to the East Side, and that's pretty much, you know, where it gets rowdy. So, you know, I lived on the Northeast side, uh, more near various Lompapitas. It wasn't the greatest, but it wasn't like crazy bad. But if you go like a little bit up North, uh, not North South of that, yeah, it gets, it gets, it can get a little, it can get a little, uh, a little, uh, uh, fun. Um, but yeah, I just grew up in East San Jose. Um, you know, I went to multiple high schools. Uh, I finally graduated in Piedmont Hills high. Um, I got kicked out of three, um, Limbrook, Cupertino, and then Independence Eye. Wow. Um, and just had an interesting upbringing for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was there a time period where you moved to Cupertino and then back to East San Jose? Uh, I think we, we, we listened to one of your podcasts before and you're saying how you moved to Cupertino. It didn't feel like home and you wanted to move back to East San Jose. 
you were talking to your mom about yeah it's kind of like fresh prince of bel-air if you know this tv <laughs> series right like so yeah. my mom was like you know you're getting into too much trouble um you know the east side of san jose is not good for you you're probably gonna end up in jail so i'm gonna pick you up and send you over to the west side where all the good smart and decent chinese kids are um and hopefully that will sh- you know shaping you up um instead i got into more trouble because i just got really fed up with just a lot of you know ignorance there and uh eventually got myself kicked out of my first two high schools in the first two in the first year uh six months at each and then uh i basically told my mom i, I want to go back to the east side because that's where i feel like i'm at home and all my friends are so mm-hmm. i basically coerced her and i moved in with my aunt uh, in Flickinger Park, which was close to Independence High, which was this massive high school, mainly Southeast Asians and Hispanic, um, where I spent two years. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. And can you talk about talk a little bit about you know just like your upbringing, like what were the outside factors that kind of shaped your identity, and like what made you kind of get into the trouble that your mom had talked about, and talk about that experience. Um, you know, I think anyone growing up in a single parent family home, uh, you know, my mom was, you know, she hustled, right. Um, you want to talk about Asian hustle network. I mean, Mm -hmm. just talk to our parents, right. They all came here with nothing on, nothing on their back and, you know, maybe a few hundred dollars in their pockets and they had to figure it out. Right. And a lot of them ended up as restaurant owners or dry cleaners or, you know, odd jobs or multiple jobs. Um, you know, I think in the eighties and nineties later, there were more engineers that were hired, uh, from Asia, uh, from Taiwan specifically. Um, and that kind of helped the Silicon Valley, you know, uh, I would say demographic of Asians kind of have a higher income or, or, or a better income. But in the early days, it was all hustle. You know, and my mom was single. Uh, I mean, her and my dad had a very interesting relationship, but he was in and out. And so she had to support us, which is three kids. And she did daycare. Right. And so she would just take care of kids, uh, you know, in the house. They were like half, half, you know, six months to two years old and uh, and was just barely making rent. And so sometimes we didn't even know if we we're going to make rent. Um, and so, you know, for me being the only man in the house with two older sisters, I just had to originally think immediately, like I have to be the man, I have to be responsible. I need to, you know, uh, help mom out with the rent. I got to, you know, see what I can do to put food on the table. And so that just began my hustle, right? When I was 12 years old, I was raised selling candy door to door in the hood and all kinds of crazy places, getting myself, you know, in danger. Um, But, you know, in general, I just think that, when you have that type of upbringing versus uh, a traditional home that's, you know, dandelions and roses, you grow up with a different mentality, right? You grow up with a mentality that you need to survive, right? You need to overcome and you need to figure things out in order to make it in the world. And that's always been the mentality that I've always had, right? No one was going to give me a handout or a hand up. I had to figure it out for myself. Yeah. Mad, mad respect to that too. Really yeah. relatable to myself too. I mean, parents hustle all the time really low income area. And well, and the funny thing is you, you grew up in the East San Jose. I grew up in East LA. <laughs> so like, like the SoCal version. Uh, but so I similar. I mean, East LA is very, you know, it's, 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 it's Hispanic and, and yeah. Asian, right? It's Monterey park. It's, you know, San Gabriel, Garfield, all that. Yeah. Um, 
it was a different time back then. It's a lot safer now. I go back home, like, man, the area like completely changed. But, you know, what was that turning point like where, you know, you got out of trouble and you're like, okay, I want to make something for, my, for myself now. I want to make my legacy. I want to do what I want to do. Like, who did you meet and how did, how did you get that breakthrough? Um, you know, I think in life, you know, life throws you chances, you know, um, but you have to be ready for them. And I'm always about 90% is, is doing the work. 10% is luck. Um, and I think that, you know, champions don't become champions overnight, right? They become champions through practice, uh, hours and hours, right? When everyone else is sleeping and everyone else is snoozing, you know, uh, you know, champions are there that are sacrificing their sleep. They're sacrificing, uh, what they're eating, right. They're, they're, they're fasting, they're focused. Um, they're giving up the pleasures of daily life that other people usually enjoy in order to be, you know, a winner. Um, and so when you actually get into that ring, right, that's when, you know, it really shows and proves whether or not what you invested, right. Actually, uh, has paid off. And so for me, I think it was always just putting in the work, always hustling, always working hard, always just doing my best and more um, and just being excellent. You know, even in, when I got to college, you know, it took three degrees. Uh, I graduated summa cum laude. Uh, I had two jobs while I was still in university. Um, and even when I got my master's, in, you know, in L.A., I was still uh, doing my own businesses. And I was, you know, traveling the world doing an online master's program. So for me, I'm just more pragmatic. Like I don't, I, I don't like being idle. I don't like sitting in a classroom. Like some people love that. Like my sister's like an MD PhD. Like she could live in university for her whole entire life. Right. Versus me. Like I can't sit in a class longer than 30 minutes. I think I'm going to go insane. Right. So for me, it's always about, okay, what can I learn and how do I apply it? Right. And, and, and how do I actually use this education to my advantage to actually put it into practice. And so for me, I was just always very pragmatic that way. And so, you know, I was just always hustling. And uh, I think by the time I was, uh, shoot, right out of high school, um, I was hosting a video game show. It was crazy. It's called Gamer Nation. It was on Channel 4, NBC. And uh, it was with, uh, and I would just do interviews with all the latest esports and PlayStation and whatever games. And we did like, I think something crazy, like a hundred episodes. And then from there, I decided to start my own TV program. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and people just thought I was crazy. I literally took a bunch of my high school friends, 12 of them went to a mountain view community center, uh, where they had these community TV stations. And they basically said, you can learn how to make your own TV show and it's paid for by the city. So I literally went in with 12 high school kids and we literally learned how to work cameras, how to edit, how to produce, how to direct, how to set up performances. So I set up like my own, it was like my own Jimmy Fallon show. Wow. And uh, basically I <laughs> did the trailer, hosted it, had dope ass artists come and perform, um, had really, really cool people that we interviewed that were making like a positive impact in the community that we would, you know, tell their story, uh, local influencers, celebrities at the time, we would do the B-roll footage. And I literally made, I don't even know, like 50 episodes of that. Right. And then syndicated it to like 14 community cable networks. I mean, this is like 1997, right? 
right? Uh-huh. I mean, I was like literally 17 years old and already like had a mindset, you know what? I'm not going to wait for someone to figure out some Asian kid in San Jose that's going to go make, you know, a relevant youth culture TV program uh, to somehow get picked up by MTV. I was like, forget that. I'm just going to go do it myself. And so I think that that understanding that media has a massive influence on the minds and behavior of culture was always embedded in my thinking. And so I was always like, you know what? Media is the most influential influential platform uh, and apparatus to impact culture in the world. And this is what I want to do. And I'm going to not wait for anyone. I'm going to do it myself. So I have my own TV series by the time I did. I think I did for like two years. I was like 17 and 19. And then I have my own radio program literally on a, on a, on a professional AM, uh, uh, station. And it was a similar concept, but I just did it for radio, which was reaching out to young people. Um, and so it was very interesting. If you just think about that, like, you know, you're 17, 18, 19, and you're creating your own TV program from scratch. You're doing your own radio program from scratch. And I never really thought back like that was actually the foundation to everything else that I'm doing now, 20 years later, right. In media, digital media, entertainment, content, film, TV, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I was doing that. And then I had started this hip hop Bible study. That's actually where it all started. I had this hip hop Bible study where on the east side of San Jose, this like deep east side, this is where um, my home church was. And it was a Chinese American church. And it was right on Tully and McLaughlin, which was in the, like the heart of the hood. And uh, but every Tuesday night, the place was empty. Uh, because uh, most of the churchgoers came from the West side and they really just came there for the weekends. Right. But they were well off well to do. So I said to the pastor, Hey, can I actually take a hold of the church on uh, the auditorium on Tuesday nights when it's empty and just invite my friends from the hood and get them off the streets and go, you know, study, study the Bible. Right. But the, the reality was the way I tricked all my friends to come. So I had like drug dealer friends. I had my gangster gangster friends and I had like my hip hop, like, hood friends like my underground hip-hop crew and so basically it was like yo guys if you guys come and study the bible for an hour then the auditorium's yours and you guys can use it for like four or five hours to b-boy dj you know mc whatever and so it worked and this thing like blew up to hundreds of kids every tuesday night and what happened was it cultivated this place for talent so now i had the best break break dancers and and and, and hip-hop dancers in all the bay area coming out tuesday night i had the dopest graffiti designers and, and, and writers. I had the dopest rappers. We had the dopest DJs, like a lot of them, like Jabawakis now, like they came out of that. Right. I mean, that's how, that's how far back it goes. And so looking back, like I was raised putting in the work, doing this, right. Reaching out to the community. And then I was like, okay, what if I spin this into a TV program? What if I spin this into a radio program, right? But made it like non-religious, but still relevant, positive, inspirational. And so that became the impetus for me to meet MC Hammer, uh, which is now a 23-year relationship, you know, literally hosting a clubhouse last night for six hours with Hammer. And, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's like my dad, right? He's like my black dad. And, and uh, he's taught me everything I know when it comes to startup, when it comes to deal making, when it comes to uh, venture capital, when it comes to media and entertainment and music business. I mean, I literally, I still remember when I first started working for him, I was chasing him down for six months, trying to get him to come speak at a, a, the hip hop event I had, uh, an outreach event. And I finally got a hold of him, he agreed to do it. And he was like, you know, what do you do? And I was like, I work at a startup in Cupertino. And so that was my first job out of high school. I was working at a tech startup across from Apple. And we were selling websites to small and medium-sized businesses. So literally would go 
store to store, like, just like, Hey, you know, do you need a web page? And, um, he was like, Oh, you're in, you're in, you're in venture, you're in startup, you're in tech. And I was like, yeah, he's like, I invest in tech. I invest in startups. He's like, you're Asian. You must not use a computer can work for me. And so I was like, are you kidding me? MC hammer. And so I was bugging out that hammer wanted me to, you know, work for him. I was, I was like, he was a legend, right? I, mean, I was a hip hop head. I was like, this is crazy. He's like, like working for Barack Obama, you know? So he was just like, you know, meet me at this address all the way in Tracy, California. I get to the office and it's just me and him. And he's like, okay, you're going to basically be my right hand and just whatever I tell you to do, just figure it out mm-hmm. and I'll figure it out with you. And, you know, we're going to do it. And at that time, everything in the office was Bluetooth wireless. He was like rich content, digital distribution, Hollywood's going down, music industry's going down. Hollywood is coming to Silicon Valley. And this is in 1997. Right. And so I'm just like, I have no idea what he's talking about, but I'm just like, I'm just down. Right. And I still remember we were at a Fry's electronics in uh, San Jose, uh, just picking up some stuff. And he's like, he buys this ROM book. It's literally a CD ROM on how to write a business plan. And he was like, Jason, this is my gift to you. You're going to go write, figure out how to write a music plan for our record label. And we're going to go raise seven figures. And I literally looked at him like, what are you talking about? Like, I have no clue how to write a business plan, like, let alone like what? So literally, I literally went on my, you know, my, 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 my computer and just literally went slide by slide, figured out how to write a business plan from like SWAT to strengths, weakness, opportunities, threats, you know, to financials. I mean, I had no clue what I was doing. And, but I would ask him, I was like, okay, so how does it work? Like, how does the music label work? How do we do? And he was talking about back then, like this radio, when, you know, it, it costs $2 million to push a record. And he was talking about payola and how all the DJs around the nation were getting paid under the table with radio one and clear channel. Anyways. So I was like learning all this stuff and just taking it in as a sponge, you know? So by the time I was 19, we'd already raised multi-million dollars off of this little business plan that I wrote off of a Fry's electronic CD-ROM and, and, and just got immersed right in the world of music. And how does, how does, how does, how does the music, the labels and and the industry and and hip hop work? And so anyway, so those were like just early days. And it was from that point that, um, you know, it just opened up doors to so many other things like Hammer. You know, he was partners with Ron Conway. They were best friends. Ron's a godfather of Silicon Valley in, in, in the Bay Area. And so he coined the term angel investment. Um, so he was the first to check into Twitter and Google and all these other major companies. And so he would always tip off Hammer on the next startup that was like the next big thing. So I used to take Hammer to all these crazy meetings. I still remember driving him to YouTube in San Mateo when it was five people. And it was literally five people above pizza parlor. And Hammer's was like, we're uploading content to servers. You know, he would take out like a, cam- a Casio camcorder and start shooting content of a music video with his own camcorder. It was like super cheesy at the time, right? And I'm just like, Hammer, like he's like, no, no, no. It's, it's all about user generated content. I'm like, Nah, like you need to go call up, you know, whatchamacallit, whatever his name is, to do a million dollar Britney Spears music video at the time. And so, again, it was just really, really ahead of his time. Um, The way that he thought, the way that he saw where the industry was going. If you look at Hollywood today is no longer Hollywood. It's controlled by Silicon Valley. Right. It's, It's Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix and Google. And so, you know, 
who would have thought 20 years later his prophecy would come true? Um, but it's really just having that foresight. And so, yeah, so, you know, that, those are my early days uh, doing venture capital, doing media deals, entertainment deals, music label deals, uh, basically just running all things for, for, for Hammer Incorporated. And then from there, you know, I, I got inspired to go and do my, my own thing. Wow, that is incredible. I love that story. I love how you're able to just scope out opportunities for yourself, you know, and you, you know, opening up that Bible study and bringing in people in to create opportunities for them to like rap, b-boy, do anything that they want. That's, that's just incredible. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I appreciate the hustle. And on top of that, there's a good, good takeaway, too, you know, like find a mentor and, and learn as much as you can. I feel like that's a big takeaway, but kind of curious about the early beginnings of 88 you know so we read some articles about that and almost almost called rice <laughs> so we want to learn um we know that the inspiration was connected to jeremy lynn during insanity want to hear more about the the early days of 88 and how that came about yeah and what kind of made you want to represent asian culture in the media with 88 rising as well definitely um you know i think you know, a movie that impacted me greatly was a movie called Better Luck Tomorrow, uh, director Justin Lin. And so, you know, our connection with that was that Hammer saved the movie um, when it was about to go bankrupt and shut down. And he had met Justin at CES uh, one year on the ground floor. And, um, you know, he just wired Justin the cash, wow. even though he had barely met him just once, right? And to save the movie, and it launched Justin Lin's career. You know, and so when we saw the film um, post Sundance, I remember it was at the Asian, it was an Asian American Film Festival, and uh, it was opening opening film. I was like, "Wow, this is such a dope movie," but also this is a dope and true representation of Asian America, and um, it was something that was done with excellence. Uh, the storytelling was incredible the cinematography was incredible so just in and of itself as a, as a film it was excellent um regardless of whether it was about it, it asian americans or, or or the culture and i think that's when you're able to transcend because you're not trying to do something because you're black or you're brown or you're yellow or you're white but you're just creating a work of art or a story that is truly something great and when something is truly great, it becomes undeniable. And then you can then bring your culture and your, and what you represent into, you know, that, 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 that platform. And I think when I saw Better Luck Tomorrow, it was just a great film that was directed by an Asian, acted by Asians, and was a true depiction of Asians uh, that I grew up with or I knew. And so I thought, wow, this is amazing. Like this is the first film where Asians weren't just, goblins or goonies or geeks or geishas, right? Um, like this was just a, a real life depiction of a, of a real narrative and, and played by Asians in an excellent way. And so when I saw that film, I was like, wow, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I want to represent Asian culture in mainstream media the right way. Um, and I, I want to do that by making more films and more TV and more content and more music um, by Asians for Asia to the rest of the world. And so I told Hammer that, and I left venture capital after I don't know, it was five, six years. And then I actually ended up having a missionary stint for four years where I went to 40 countries uh, before I got back into media. 
Um, there's a whole story behind that. But uh, when I went to 40 countries from Africa to India to South America, but a lot in Asia, specifically Southeast Asia, uh, Nepal, uh, China, and I just saw, wow, there's like a whole continent of Asian young people by like the billions, right? And, and, and they're more savvy electronically, digitally, right? They're just more connected, they're more progressive and they have this worldview where it's not about the West, it's about the East and it's about the rest of the world. And, and the East is leading that, that narrative. And I was like, wow, why is there not a platform that's giving voice and capturing what's happening in Asia uh, to the rest of the world. And so that was kind of the beginnings of, you know, what then led me into my first venture, um, which was a music label and digital media content platform, which was pre-dating 88 Rising, which was called Asian Digital Ventures Network. And at that time, I had raised about a million and I put that into this company. And out of that company, there was Far East Movement and MC Jin and Vanessa Wu and Daniel Wu and others, right? And we were kind of like, I would say the first Asian Americans in the music scene that were really breaking uh, uh, molds, right? Far East Movement had like a G6, which was the first number one hit on Billboard by an Asian American group. And then that same year, you had Bruno Mars was half Filipino and I had four tracks with Bruno before he got super big. So seeing the bridge between that through music, right? That was a pre predecessor um, to what you now know as ADA Rising, right? So then I started East West Ventures, which is now my fund. I invest into consumer products, goods, and consumer tech companies between East and West. So I take companies from the West over to Asia and companies I invest in Asia over to the West, leveraging talent and influence, leveraging consumer products and goods, leveraging D2C. But before that, it was really about, okay, China is about to become the biggest entertainment market in the world. Hollywood's just going to go wherever the box office is going to count dollars, which was China. And so all of a sudden I knew there was going to be this massive, uh, 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 what I would call uh, inner exchange, right. Of, of assets and, and capital and, and resources, human resources. And so I started East West ventures at that time by bringing over talent from Asia to Hollywood and talent from Hollywood to Asia. And we basically became like a mini CAA and we put like lonely home and like a big movie called black hat. And then we would take like, you know, Agnes Mo from Indonesia, you know, and put her on, you know, uh, and help her get her first bearings into, uh, into the scene out here in Hollywood. Uh, and at the same time, we captured all this capital going back and forth with, you know, billions of money from Wanda and Hawaii brothers being poured into Hollywood. And so during that time we did, you know, over a billion in transactions over the last 10 years, but I started seeing the power of one Asian talent and two, uh, the rise of digital media. And so at that time, it was around 2014, a lot of these uh, YouTube channels started sparking up. So there were like Maker Studios and Full Screen and All Deaf Digital for African Americans and Me Too for Latin Americans and, you know, Drama Fever and Vicky and all these different things. And I was like, well, that's interesting. And I saw things like Vice Media and Vox Media and BuzzFeed on and on, Tastemade. I was like, why is there not a digital media brand and channel representing Asian culture? Because there's so much of it that's just unseen and unheard. And uh, so at that time, uh, I went out and I met an investor who had just invested in all deaf digital drama fever and and uh, uh, MITU, the Latin American network and Emma uh, Shinema. And I was like, what about Asia? He's like, what about Asia? I was like, he's like, you put together a team and a plan. And I'll write the first check. 
And so we basically had multiple discussions. He then gave me an actual term sheet. And uh, at that time, uh, I was like, okay, this is on. Now I got to go raise the rest. So, so he gave the initial lead investment and I had to go raise another million and a half. And at that time, I was trying to figure out like, who can I get to really, you know, do this vision with me, right? Of creating basically like an Asian vice, an Asian vice media. And so at that time, Justin Chan, who's um, now a very famous upcoming director uh, for Gook and Miss Purple, et cetera, et cetera. But he was famous early on as an actor in Twilight, 21, 21 and over. Um, he was just a homie and he was just like, Jason, I want to introduce you to my buddy, Sean. Um, Cause you know, he actually works at vice. Cause I was sharing with him the vision of what I was trying to build. And he was like, that sounds like something that my boy, Sean would be perfect for, and you guys should meet. And so he planned this meeting where me and Sean met at cafe blue in K town. Right. And basically he was still at vice media at the time. And I was, you know, I was an entrepreneur. So I was like, Hey, you know, I have a lead term sheet. I have capital uh, ready to go. Uh, but I need a team and I need what you've done at Vice to do it for what we're going to do here. And at that time, I was calling the company Rice, R-Y-C-E, because when I'm meeting with investors, they're like Asian digital media, what? Like they don't even understand the concept because there wasn't even a concept or even a parallel to compare to. Right. Uh -huh. And so I would just tell them all the time in meetings, like, you know, have you heard of Vice? And they're like, yeah. I said, what's the valuation at that time? It was like five billion. I was like, well, we're Asian Vice, we're called Rice. And so, you know, sign the dotted line or write me a check. And so that was kind of the pitch. We knew we were never going to call it that, but it was really just for internal for venture capital fundraising. And so, you know, really that's what happened, right? Uh, Sean then left Vice and I was like, look, you, you'll be the CEO, you'll be the face of this. I'll be the chairman and, uh, you know, co-founding the back of the back of the bus back scenes. And, you know, I'll handle the capital fundraising, investors, business dev, you know, all the major partnerships, but you know, where Sean was really good at was finding the talent. Right. And so he was able to, you know, through his friend dumbfounded, he introduced Keith Ape and then he introduced Rich Brian. And then from there, you know, Joji came along, higher brothers was also founded internally through one of our staff. And then it kind of just snowballed, you know, into what it is now. Right. It was really originally, going to be like 50% music label and 50% like lifestyle culture content. Right. So it was kind of like a mixture of like a vice and like a bad boy records or an Asian Def Jam. But I think ultimately, like, I think, you know, the company has narrowed uh, organically become what it is now, which is more of a digital music label and, and channel. Um, and, and now getting into film and stuff like that. But, but I think the music was always the driver because we knew that was what was going to be viral. So anyway, so that's kind of how it all started. And then, uh, I, I, you know, our main office was in Brooklyn. I headed up our office in LA and then I opened up our office in Shanghai and that was super fun building the Chinese company from scratch locally. Um, and, and we just hustled run WPP series a, uh, then bite dance and, you know, Jimmy Iveen and, you know, Jack Monjo's high family office and just a lot of great investors who have backed this vision. And it's just amazing to see where it is now, you know, it's multi-billion views and, you know, tens of millions of subscribers worldwide. And I think it's really shown the world that Asian culture, you know, can, can, can meet with the best of them. Um, and that is something that is not just on the rise, but it's the future. And it's where, you know, the pulse of everything is where everything is at globally and culturally and digitally right now. Wow, that is very inspirational. You know, like you're, 
I don't know where Asian Hustle Network stands in this story, but <laughs> we still see some parallels already. We want to be the Asian TED Talk of the world, you know? And the reason why we want to be the Asian TED Talk is because someone brought to me, I was like, hey man, who, your, who were your childhood heroes? I named three white guys. You know, I'm like, wait a minute. I want to make sure that by the time we have kids or we have grandkids, that they have someone professional to look up to and look like them and sound like them, come from the same culture as them. You know, so your story like just gives us a lot of hope for what we're trying to do in our end because there is that parallel where we see you guys as the pioneers, as the people who've done it before, as the people who push for the vision. And for us, we want to push for professionalism. We want to push for the hustle. You know, we want to push for for people that look like, like for people like yourself, Jason, to like be even more well known than you are now. You know, to our our younger generation, especially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think like yeah, even like before eighty eight rising, it's true. Like there was no platform for Asian artists. You know, like I couldn't, we couldn't find anything like that. And just like Asian Hustle Network, there was no online community or online platform for Asian entrepreneurs or professionals. Mm-hmm. And even if there were, they were like very exclusive. You know, so I think yeah, we definitely resonate with eighty eight rising. Um, we'd love to know, like, what were the projects that 88 Rising was working on when you guys had first started and how has that kind of shifted over time to Also out of curiosity, when you're raising money that early, like, did you have a solid financial model and plan that you like pitched to investors or just like, Hey guy, here's my big vision and we're trying to do this. <laughs> you know, what was that? What was the process like? And like any startup, right, things always pivot, things always change. You always have an idea of what you want to do, but as you actually go and do it, you realize, you know, it actually is going to actually veer off and become something else. Uh, I think when Twitter first started, it wasn't even about what they're doing now. And so I think for us, it was originally, you know, digital media content, premium content, um, premium production services, uh, creative agency within that, that would work with branded brands for branded native content. And then of course, uh, the talent management, uh, music label side, right? So it was always a hybrid of a music label and distribution, live events, a creative agency that worked with global top, you know, fortune 500 brands, uh, and then monetizing content. Right. I don't think it's really changed that much other than the focus of content. So if you, if you follow day rising, it's early, early days in 2016 and 17, there was a lot of I would say lifestyle content, right? There was fashion, there was food, there was tech, there was, you know, human interest stories. And then, but it was heavily driven by music, right? It was kind of like a digital MTV or, or world star hip hop, right? For Asians. And, um, but then I think as we continued to build the business, we started seeing that the main revenue drivers were the actual artists, right? And, and the IP that they represented and us being able to build IP off of those brands, right? And off of those platforms. And so it was a symbiotic relationship where, you know, this venture capital that, you know, that I had raised, you know, with Sean and my, and my other counterparts was going into content, but specifically the content of the talent and the talent's content really took off, right? Took its own, its own, its own life, right? You see Joji go from this to boom, right? To, to, you know, playing Lollapalooza, Rich Chigalson becoming Rich Brian and hitting number one on the billboard charts. So I think it just naturally became uh, what it is now today, mostly known for, which is Asian hip hop, Asian music artists from Asia to the rest of the world. And I think that was one unique difference was that 88 was not about Asian America. It was about a celebration of Asians globally. And we knew that there were all these stories and talent hidden in Asia 
that we're just not seeing the light of day or getting the attention from the ARs at the major labels or the major studios, right? And so we want to take that richness of Asian culture from Asia and bring that to the rest of the world. And that's kind of, you know, what was the impetus from the beginning. And that's still what the company is doing. I'm not operational anymore. You know, I have so many other things that I'm doing as you read through my long ass bio. Um, but, you know, I still, you know, remain as a major shareholder and, you know, I love what Sean and the team is building there. And, you know, just, I, I I'm just inspired by now I get like, literally, I probably have almost a hundred, you know, investor decks from multiple different versions of 88 rising. Like I've, people from Africa being like, we're the reggaeton of 88, we're the Afro beats of 88 rising, or we're the third culture version of Norway, 88 rising, we're the TikTok female tween version of 88 rising. So 88 rising is really beyond just Asian culture. It's created a business model uh, that others want to emulate as success. And that to me is very, very incredibly inspiring and amazing. Congratulations. That's really inspiring. Yeah, that's awesome. So I actually want to shift and talk a little bit about Triller. Um, I know we know that you are like an integral part of the growth of Triller. Um, and for the listeners, our listeners who don't know, it's an entertainment platform built for creators. How did you first get involved with Triller? Um, so around 2018, I was introduced uh, through a VC in San Francisco, Adam, and he at that time, I believe it was, was a Venrock. I forgot exactly the, the fund he was with, but he had introduced me to the CEO, Mike Liu. And so he knew that I had invested in Musical.ly uh, early stage, which then became TikTok. Yeah. And so he was like, you know, there's a company that's similar, um, but they have a different demographic. They're really focused on the hip hop uh, culture and community in the U.S., and so I remember meeting Mike. Uh, I still remember to this day, we were at the Waldo Astoria at the top of top, top, top rooftop restaurant. He was showing me the product and he's a product guy. He came from the gaming industry. I was like, oh, wow, the product's actually really impressive. And so I brought him over to our fund uh, at that time to take a look and see if we can invest. But it was still very, very early. Like it was super nascent. Um, it was like less than 500,000 users. Um, but you could see that there was activity and there was growth and there was potential. Mm -hmm. So we passed on it, but I, you know, Mike asked me to just stay on as like an unofficial friendly advisor. So that's what I did. I just stayed in touch, um, and just, you know, gave support whenever I could. And then around early 2019, um, we, I had then, uh, uh, became a partner in a company called Proxima Media. And, and we were looking at a lot of different projects at the time with my partner, Ryan. And, 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 and at that time, what had happened was I was in London and I was, uh, it's a funny story, actually. I was, I was at this Founders Forum conference speaking. And then I have this friend who's an Asian Lord in the House of Lords. His name's actually Lord Wei. And he's like the only Asian dude in the House of Lords. And so he was like, hey, if you're in town, come visit me at the House of Lords. I want to show you the house of lords and i was like sure why not so <clears throat> i took some time off like two hour break went over there and it gives me the whole tour and then there's like this cafe inside like some famous like tea spot like tea time right now you know british do tea right so he was like hey let's go to this tea room it's like where princess diana and elizabeth have tea and we get in there and then he notices there's three of his uh, colleagues or friends 
uh, who happened to be uh, Oxford AI music professors. And he was like, hey, you guys should meet Jason. Jason works with Tencent Music and KK Box, um, and also was an investor in Musical.ly. And they, you kind of see their eyes just like, oh, really? So they're like, hey, can we meet with you and show you our technology? We, we've actually built a music AI editor. And so I was like, man, I'm leaving tomorrow or in two days. And I said, I barely have enough time, but let me just carve out like 30 minutes later today. So they came over to me, presented it to me, and I was actually very impressed by the tech, where basically the tech, you're able to put any photo or video to the AI and any song to it, and it was spit out a different edit of a different music video to each song. And it was seamless, it was it was synchronistic, and it was, it was actually very disruptive. And I was like, what are you guys doing with this? And they're like, well, you know, we got offered from a major platform to buy us for X, um, or we're gonna go raise 15 million pounds um, or, you know, I said, I have another idea for you. Why don't we meet again? So we met the next morning, uh, before I flew out and I still remember writing the strategy on a page, but on a, I think it was, might've been a napkin or paper. But I was like, there's a company called Triller that, uh, I know, and I, I unofficially advise, I said, um, my company Proxima, my partner's already talking to potentially acquiring this company. Right. I said, but you know, what would be interesting is with your music AI tech, if you merge it with Triller, right, then we can actually justify, you know, a hundred million dollar plus valuation and then become TikTok number two. And, and so that's what happened. So they, they, they flew out to LA and um, we basically had multiple meetings and worked out a deal and we were able to merge Triller and uh, this company called Mass Tracks into one entity, and then we raised capital. And at that time, I had introduced um, a few major uh, first uh, uh, investors. So, a uh, family office in Taiwan called WTT, and also uh, a group that's also my largest shareholder, Nadia Rise and GDP Ventures. And so, they were the first capital in. Um, we structured it, and then basically, we acquired a majority stake in the company. And then a bunch of major celebrity hip hop artists like Migos and Pitbull and uh, Marshmallow all became investors in that round. And then after we announced it, you know, that's when we really started putting all of our resources into the company from the Hollywood side, from the Silicon Valley side, from the music tech AI side, music relationship side. And then really just blew it up overnight where, you know, now Triller's really become a household name, as you saw with the Mike Tyson, Roy Jones Jr. fight um, that I helped put together. And you know, the cultural meme moment with Jake Paul and Nate Robinson. I mean, Trello's really kind of taken its own lane and now the company's, you know, about to go public, you know, very soon. So yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. Congrats. Awesome. Yeah. That's awesome to hear. Yeah. I mean, I love, I love your journey. Everything connects to each other so seamlessly, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I want to provide some context for the younger listeners to listen to that they can do it too. So as you're doing this, like, what kind of struggles have you faced where you're like, man, like, maybe this is not for me. Maybe you start doubting yourself, you know, because we hear about all your successes, but you want to know, like, what, what are some of your darker moments that you're comfortable with sharing with us? Because that's what makes you relatable to all of us. And that's how we can relate to you and feel like we can do it, too. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, every entrepreneur is not a true entrepreneur without failure. And failure is almost a prerequisite to success. And uh, it's only when you fail that you can actually 
become your true self because you have no more props that you can lie on or, or stand up on. And I think there's been multiple times, you know, in my career where, you know, I've had differences with my co-founders. I've had differences with, you know, people that I thought were going to be with me forever. And, um, and people turn on you and people backstab you and it gets legal. It gets, you know, all kinds of stuff. And there were definitely moments in my life that, in my career journey that, I just want to quit. I just don't want to deal with, you know, just the drama of media entertainment is already a very high, intense, high stress, very smoke and mirrors business, right? It's all talk. It's all hype, right? It's all sales, right? And it's all about who you know, right? And who likes you, who doesn't like you. And everyone's talking shit about each other. It's like just, and that's a problem, especially with Asians. I think, you know, if you looked at like Jewish culture, like, if you're Jew and I'm Jew, we're supporting each other. You know what I'm saying? Because, you know, we got to survive, right? But like a lot of times the Asians, it's like, I think for whatever reason, we're just like one of the highest, most insecure cultures on the planet, right? I don't know if it's because of our parents, right? Not allowing us to grow up. Um, but, you know, the, re- the reality is it's very hard for Asians to celebrate other Asian success. Because yes. um, it's like, well, why her? Why him? Like, why not me, right? And so it's a very small-minded micro microscopic, you know, worldview where somehow there's jealousy and insecurity versus, Hey, empowerment, celebration, community, and, and furthering of the culture. Right. And I think, you know, there are many times that people just don't, there's people, people just don't like me. It just talk shit about me all the time. Right. But it just is what it is. Right. And you can't listen to what people may say about you. What you need to do is always just have tunnel vision and know that this is what God's created you to do. This is your purpose. And you're just going to stay heads down, focused, and just make it happen. If you get caught up with what other people say and rumors and hearsay and this, that, and the third, then you start losing your focus and you start losing your energy and you start trying to put out fires or trying to win, win battlefronts that shouldn't even be fought. Right. And so end of the day is you got to know what you're called to do and you got to have the tunnel vision and the focus and the drive and the persistence and tenacity to weather through any storm, which means hate. The more successful you get, the more hate you're going to get, the more criticism you're going to get, the more, you know, uh, legalities and and issues are going to become more and more uh, continuous. But you just have to have you have to have, you know, thick skin and be able to pummel through. Um, So for me, you know, there are moments where it just was bad. You know, I had a moment where I was in a lawsuit with one of my first co-founders, you know, he was threatening me for everything. My mom had just had cancer stage four. And, you know, it was just a time when I had, you know, there were so many rumors. I had lost so many friends in the Asian community. People didn't want to even talk to me or even be around me, but I couldn't justify myself. You know, I said, you know what? do I justify myself or do I go take care of my mom? And so, you know, I took, I took a year off from everything and just like took care of my mom. And, you know, by the grace of God, she, she overcame stage four cancer. She's, you know, knock on wood, thank the Lord, you know, uh, uh, eight years, you know, cancer free now. Um, but you know, it was during that time that, you know, when I didn't want to do any more media entertainment or tech and, and just, didn't want to deal with it anymore. That was when I was at my rock bottom that I really then knew when I felt inspired to do it again, that it wasn't for me. You know, it wasn't something that I was trying to prove 
to others or prove to myself, but it really was something that I felt like a higher power was calling me to do. And I think, you know, coming out of that and then seeing everything happen the way it's happened now, you know, looking back, it's, you know, I'm just thankful. Right. And you just got to be grateful, but you know, you always got to just be ready for anything and know that bad shit's going to happen. And, but when it does make sure you have true friends around you and make sure that you remember what you were purposed and originally set out to do and know that it's going to be hard, but if you don't give up, eventually it'll work out. I'm so glad your mother is eight years cancer free and just really glad to hear that. That's so powerful. Yeah. I've seen Maggie tear up already. Yeah. Her eyes are, um, are hella red. Yeah. I mean, everything <laughs> you said is so true. I think like just growing up as an Asian, we, we grew up with that mentality of like competition and competing with other people because our parents kind of ingrained that in us. Right. And it's really important for us to just recognize that and kind of take a step back and reevaluate and prioritize what is most important in our lives. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I do want to lighten up the subject a bit and talk about, you know, the, I think you mentioned earlier the four years she took off or something uh, just to travel the world. Um, out of curiosity, have you, before, have you ever performed an exorcist before? <laughs> well, it sounds like you listened to some of my recent podcasts. Um, we listened to, we, we listen to all your podcasts before. Yeah, Brian actually was, we were listening and Brent's like, she said performed an exorcist. Like, I want to hear about I'm it in our podcast about too. <laughs> I mean, look, I, look, I mean, I, I, I don't want to, how do I say it? Um, fantasy, fan, fan, fantasize or, or make that fantastical. Right. I, I think it was a very, uh, very specific time in my life when I was a missionary and I was in third world countries, uh, like India, Indonesia, you know, South Africa, shanty towns, uh, South America. And you just have to think about it this way that a lot of, uh, the rest of the world, by the way, is not first world, right? The rest of the world, most of them are still native tribal kingdoms, right? And most of them don't have access to water, food, hospitals, medicine, right? And for a lot of these cultures, right? It's a local shaman, it's a local witch doctor, it's a local whatever it might be. And I've seen it in first world cities as much as I've seen it in third world, but in third world, you know, people believe in spirits and they believe in the spiritual realm and black magic and voodoo and witchcraft and all these different things that's very normal. They're not even bad things. These are things that technically solve problems, right? Whether it's illness or, or droughts or famine or fear or whatever. And so, you know, I just was in situations where, you know, we would see literally at, at some of our rallies, hundreds, if not thousands of exorcisms happen at the same time. And, and so, you know, I would be in Indonesia and we'd have, you know, 30,000 come out to a crusade and we would actually have tents uh, specifically for deliverance or for exorcisms, because uh, in that culture, so many resort to black magic. It's part of the culture. It's not like some random thing. It's like it's in their culture. It's like it's in your food. It's in your music. It's in your your folklore. Right. It's in your customs. It's in your traditions. Right. You go to, you know, these, these, these uh, witch doctors or these shamans or these whatever you will seances, whatever you want to call it. And so many times at our, our events our crusades, we would at the end when we start ministering, we would start, you know, praying and 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 people would start manifesting and it would be so violent that we literally had to train hundreds of, of deliverance workers and volunteers to be able to like basically 
pick up people, put them on stretchers and put them into a tent and then actually do deliverance with them. And so this was just like on a mass scale. Personally, I've probably seen at least 100 plus personally, like I had to actually get involved. Um, but, you know, it's it's just real. Right. I mean, whether you choose to believe it or not. Right. I think um, I think I think the world's getting in some ways more spiritual as we're also getting more technological. I think that's why all these people are into yoga and crystals and like, you know, going to I don't know, Tulum and meditating. Right. So it's like people realize there's only so much to technology. There's only so much to the things that you can have in this world when you realize maybe we're created for something more. Maybe there is a higher power. Maybe there is, you know, something beyond the flesh and an afterlife. Right. And I think whether you're Buddhist or Hindu or Islam or Christian, the kind of main world religions or, or Judaism uh, is that there's an understanding that majority of the planet believes in God. Majority of the planet believes in spirituality and majority of the planet has experienced spiritual encounters. Right. And so I was making a documentary about exorcisms about seven years ago and it got too hot. It got too crazy. So I was like, you know what? I need to stop because I'm probably going to get killed or die or something crazy is going to happen to me. But uh, anyway, so, yeah, I, in general, you know, I don't want to get into specifics on this podcast, um, but I would just say that, you know, that was something in a time in my life where, you know, that was my life. I was out there as a missionary and I had to cast out devils, heal the sick raise the dead and, and preach the gospel. Thank you for sharing that, man. Amazing. Yeah. I do want to ask um, this one question that I think would be pretty important on this podcast. In your perspective, how do you think artists can continue to represent Asian culture in the right way today? I think it's just about finding your own voice, making excellent and great art and content and just being original. You know, I think the world is not looking for copycats. You know, I think the world is looking for originals. And that's why when you have an original anything, it's actually valuable, right? It's not when you have something that is a copy of a copy of something else. And so, you know, I mean, recently my friend was letting me listen to all this new music coming out of Asia, this trap hip hop. And I mean, it's dope. Like, I don't get me wrong. Like I'm listening to it and like, okay, these kids can spit, beats are tight. You know, the visuals are dope, but it doesn't really sound anything different, right? Than what I'm hearing, you know, in, in hip hop and trap today in the States. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and there's no one that really sticks out. Right. And when you listen to someone like Rich Brian, his voice is so low, you know, his comedy and sketches are so funny. Like he's just his own thing. Right. When you listen to Joji, he's his own thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Far East movement. They're their own thing. MC Jin, he's his own thing. Jeremy Lin, he's his own thing. So I think it's like when Asians find their voice and their original lane, and then you're able to honestly express yourself, right, through your own voice and through your own personality, that's when you can really stand out. Mm -hmm. But if you kind of just sound like everything else or you're kind of just mimicking or trying to be like something else, that comes across. And when it's not authentic and it's not original and it's not great, like there's a lot of good out there, but there's not a lot of great. Mm -hmm. And, and that's the difference that, that extra hour, you know, invested that extra hundred hours, that extra thousand hours makes the difference. Like people are born with talent, but not people are born with the principle of hard work. Right. There's a lot of lazy people that are talented that go nowhere. 
right? But it's people that actually work hard and work harder than you. They're the ones that actually normally get far and succeed. But again, what is it that you're trying to say? And what is it creatively that you're trying to bring that is uniquely you that no one else can do? Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Very powerful. Jason, how can our listeners find out more about you online? And do you have any final remarks? Um, you know, I got social handles like everyone else. So just at Jason Ma, J-A-E-S-O-N-M-A. Um, find me on the clubhouse if you're out there too. Um, I think at the end of the day is just be yourself, you know, care less about what anyone says and just be able to be the best version of you and whatever you are set out in your mind to do and work hard at it and anything's possible. I love that, man. Love it. It was awesome having you on the show, Jason. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you, Jason. Appreciate you, man. All right, Asian Hustle Network. One love. Hey, guys. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.